Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Uh, testing, testing, testing. Talking here with Katie in Seattle in the restaurant that I've been to twice already. This is the third time in one day that Ed joins the hotel, the Kimpton. Yes, we're, we're going full restaurant here. This is an experimental yes. radio. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Mo Rocca is a correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning, the host of the Henry Ford's Innovation Nation, and the host creator of My Grandmother's Ravioli, a cooking channel show where he learns to cook from grandmothers and grandfathers. He's a frequent panelist on the NPR quiz show Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and he also spent four years as a correspondent on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. This is where I pare it down. He performed on Broadway. He's written award-winning television. He's written two books, including the one we're here to talk about today, Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Living, and Mobituaries is also a podcast. Thanks for being here. Katie, thank you so much for having me, and I'm sorry you're not eating anything. Oh, that's okay. We're in a restaurant because, you know, it's afternoon and he has to perform tonight. So I think I have a very fast metabolism, a very high metabolism, so I got really hungry already. Yeah. Did you have lunch? Did you miss it? I did have, well, yes, I did have lunch. I, at the same restaurant a few hours ago, I got a, a chicken and avocado salad, and it was really good, and, um, and it went right through me. <laughs> well, this is, this is a high stakes, high pressure book tour, you know? Actually, I'm just kidding. With a man with this many credits, probably nothing really. No, I understand that, and it's funny because I know authors, other authors, who dread this part of it, the book tour. I actually love it because I look at everything I do as performative. I mean, I really do, whether I'm interviewing somebody in news or writing kids TV, or in this case, promoting a book. I think it's really fun to answer questions and especially to do it in front of a crowd. Yeah, it is. It's a lot of energy, a lot of energy in the room, less of a vacuum. Yeah, it is. And I mean, it's it's a book about a lot of different stories. And so invariably, you know, appearances turn into storytelling. So the subtitle of the book is Great Lives Worth Reliving. What makes a life worth reliving for you? Basically, that it's something that's interesting to me. And I know that's a really circular non-response. I wanted to write about people that kind of got me in the gut. I'm 50 years old now, and part of my journey, I think, has been learning to kind of embrace what's interesting to me, not try to game the system, not try to say, this will be interesting to this many people. Just say, this is interesting to me. And it doesn't necessarily mean something that I already know a lot about. It's usually something that I don't know much about, that it just sort of piques my interest. Maybe I have a memory. Essentially what evolved is it's somebody who I feel is not remembered in the way that he or she should be. That person could still be well-known. That person could be someone who was, thank you very much. Thank you. That could be somebody who was once very well-known and fell off the map, which I think is really interesting, people who were once household names and then disappeared. Or it could be somebody that never got really any credit. I have a series of people called Forgotten Forerunners who did remarkable things maybe too early on like they set the stage, but we weren't all ready to hear it yet. I think that's right. I think that's right. You know, they raise a different question. Why are they forgotten? I mean, there's this woman, Elizabeth Jennings, who 100 years, almost exactly 100 years before Rosa Parks, this African-American woman was kicked off of a horse-drawn streetcar in lower Manhattan in New York City. And she sued 
this is before the Civil War, and she sued in civil court, and she won, and she helped lead to the integration of New York's transportation system. And in that case, the question was, why was she forgotten? The theory that I buy, that one historian posited, is that the North doesn't like to think it's any way, in any way similar to the South in this country, and that if you really know this woman's story, and her name is Elizabeth Jennings, then you focus on the segregation that was happening in the North, and that slavery in New York State only ended in 1827, which wasn't that long before it ended in the South. How do you discover somebody like that? Say, if she's been so forgotten, everybody listening is just like, who? <laughs> and and yet you found her. So how did you come across her? Well, I'm a big presidential history buff. I love the really obscure, weird presidents. They're usually from the 19th century. A bunch of them were from Ohio. And one of them, this one is not from Ohio. This one was um, Chester Allen Arthur, our 21st president. And I was reading a trivia book, presidential trivia book. And I read that Chester Allen Arthur, who is basically most famous as being the guy who took over when James Garfield was assassinated, and also as the guy who had just this crazy mutton chops, like super hipster mutton chops, he represented Elizabeth Jennings as a young man, pre-mutton chops, when he was clean-shaven, and he represented her, and they won. So I thought, well, wait a minute, that's interesting, but who is this woman? Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, this is an obvious one, maybe, but because our show started in Rome and because my co-host is still in Rome and a lot of this show actually still is about Rome, when I lived in Rome, Audrey Hepburn was still everywhere. And in fact, strange fact, in the apartment that I rented and lived there for a year, the dominating feature of the apartment was a black and white picture of Audrey Hepburn. Wow. Well, it's funny. I... um one of the podcast episodes and the cha- uh, chapter in the book is about Audrey Hepburn and why she still fascinates us more than a quarter century after her death. And when I lived in Japan many years ago, I remember that, so I think it's a fair generalization, that Japanese women, at least then, were obsessed with Audrey Hepburn. And in Rome, near the Trevi Fountain, right, they as well as many other international tourists, would kind of go and retrace the steps that she made as the character of Princess Anne in the film Roman Holiday. And my father was a big Japanophile, and I once asked him, why are Japanese women so into Audrey Hepburn? He said, well, it's partly a physicality thing, and they, they could emu- maybe emulate her more easily. But another reason is that movie Roman Holiday, she chooses duty over love in the end, and that seems to be sort of a virtue or a value that at least in post-war Japan really drew the Japanese. Yeah, that's really interesting because that would have been a, a value in Japan. Yeah, right, exactly. To take care of your family, not run off and, and move to Europe. Not run off on a Vespa with Gregory Peck. Exactly. As enticing as that sounds. <laughs> and how much the audience, especially the American audience, probably wants her to do that. You know, mm-hmm. they want her to give it all up. Mm-hmm. Different cultures. Part of what I thought was fascinating, I read it again in the book, but I also heard it on your podcast, was we think of her as definitely a -a one-of-a-kind movie star, but a a movie star that comes to be in America. And so as Americans, we we like to own her a little bit. But she's not at all. No, she wasn't. I mean, she was really born in Belgium. Then they moved to England, to the UK. But then she they made a really bad move, she and her mother, by going to Holland once World War II, I think, had begun, or maybe shortly before. But in any case, they were 
in Holland when it was occupied by the Nazis and blockaded by the Nazis and when many people starved. Some people starved to death. A good number of people starved to death. She nearly starved to death. And when I talked to both of her sons, they agreed that her experience in World War II was so fundamental to who she was and so at the base of, at the heart of this quality of yearning and gratitude, you just see them in her. And after hearing her story and what she went through in the war, this is not some kind of fan fiction. She did indeed raise money for the resistance from participating in secret dance performances. And then she became sort of Angelina Jolie before Angelina Jolie as a spokeswoman for UNICEF going all over the world. But when I went back and looked at her movie roles, after hearing this story of what she went through in the war, I could really see it in her eyes. I could see it in the glee she expresses when she's riding on that Vespa through Rome, when she's free for a day, liberated. If you've seen the movie, you know you know that she's basically goes incognito as a commoner and gets to experience real freedom. You can see it in Breakfast at Tiffany's as Holly Golightly, this kind of quality. And what I found so interesting was that the studios tried to replicate her. They tried. They found other actresses that even looked at her like her, that were beautiful, that had lots of talent, but they didn't have the same quality. And it's very significant that Audrey Hepburn in her first screen test, it's her talking about the war. I mean, that's what she's doing. She's not reading lines. She's not talking about how lovely it is to be in California. She's talking about what she went through in the war. So, you know, I don't believe these things happen by accident. I think audiences are smart, and I think that they respond to people, and especially over long periods of time, for good reasons. Yeah. And how do you think that affected her personal life or her personal outlook, as, like not just as a performer, but how she moved through the world? Um, well, by all accounts... She didn't really value celebrity. I actually ran into somebody in a restaurant after the podcast aired who was her handler during a visit to Disney World in the 80s. or Maybe it was in the, in the very early 90s, but I think it was the 80s. And he said, I'm telling you, she just did not understand that people were that excited by her. She just didn't really get it. So I think that she really was a compassionate person. It is true that Otto Frank and Frank's father let her read the unpublished manuscript of the diary of Anne Frank and wanted her to play Anne Frank in, I believe, the play that was made before the movie, and she refused to do it. She said she just emotionally couldn't handle it, that even though she obviously had been not been sent off to a concentration camp, she still felt too close to that experience. So I think it made her a very empathetic person, yeah. Yeah. Weren't they, her and Anne Frank, around the same age, too? That was part of it. Like, she felt a kind of kinship with Anne Frank. And, yeah, and certainly Otto Frank, Anne Frank's own father, felt that there was a, a kind of closeness there. Mm-hmm. So with her, when we qualify a life that hasn't gotten enough attention, I mean, Audrey Hepburn's gotten so much attention, and still in Rome and Japan continues to get so much attention, so why has she appeared in this? Well, there were two reasons she appeared, one of which was that she died on the same day that Bill Clinton was inaugurated, so she was pushed off the front page, and I'm sort of fascinated by this phenomenon of famous people either dying on the same day, or dying on a day when no one knows that they died. And I think it sort of is kind of the randomness of death Mm -hmm. writ large, right? Or in a glittery way. 
so there was that, and I even went to President Bill Clinton, who is a fan of Audrey Hepburn, loves her movies, and asked if he was aware that she had died on the same day, and he didn't know. He wasn't lying to me. He did not know. His eyes just widened when I told him that. I mean, granted, he was busy that day, so it's understandable. But even though she is such an icon, as somebody in a Manhattan novelty store said to me, Every year, Marilyn, Elvis, and Audrey, those three, there's all, they always sell. And no one had effectively answered for me the question, why? What is that quality that seems to be pervading? And I don't think it's just that she's pretty or stylish or that people like what she's wearing when she's standing outside of Tiffany's. There's something else that's happening. And I've had young women in particular come up to me and even say, oh my God, she's all over Instagram or she's all over dorm room walls. And I've never seen any of her movies, but there's just something about her that's speaking to me. I think it's a real quality. Do you think it's different? Do you feel like it's the same as Marilyn Monroe? Well, I think that Marilyn Monroe, I, I once talked to Nancy Sinatra, Frank Sinatra's daughter, and Nancy's really cool. And she, she was saying, these boots are made for walking. And she told me, she said, my father, Elvis, and Marilyn, those were three people that if they walked into a room, it was like the frequencies went crazy. like. The Wi-Fi would go nuts, probably. <laughs> and so Marilyn Monroe clearly, and, and I profiled Michelle Williams when Michelle Williams played Marilyn, and everyone talks about, and I, I don't know enough about Marilyn's biography, but about this very real kind of crazy quality. I'm not saying she was crazy. I'm saying like a some kind of, well, larger than life yeah. quality. And I can only imagine, from what, from what little I know, she had a really, really rough childhood. And there was some a kind of hypersensitivity that made her like brilliant in particular moments, right? And really great with comedy. Could also then break your heart in the next moment. Let's jump a couple centuries backward because another figure that you write about that you would find traces of in Italy, in fact, buried in Rome in the non-Catholic cemetery is one of his best friends, Percy Shelley. Lord Byron's in your book. We think of him as a, you know, kind of sexy, romantic poet of the romantic movement, but... And he was. <laughs> yeah, yes. but yeah. And but. he was, but why is, why is he appearing? Well, I, I wanted to feature him in a section... I wonder if we should actually say who he is for people who don't know. Right. So Lord, Lord Byron was one of the great romantic poets, right, of England and of the 19th century. I included him in a section called celebrities who put their butts on the line. Even though we don't think of romantic poets as celebrities, he definitely was very, very famous. But he was also a person of really strong convictions. He didn't need to put himself out there because not only was he a celebrated poet, he was also nobility. And one of the things in, in, in the chapter, I point out that Catholic emancipation, Catholics who were really were second-class citizens in England, that was, and I'm a little rusty on this, but that was mm -hmm. something that he advocated. I mean, he was perpetually for the underdog, but it was his advocacy of Greek independence that I thought he should be remembered for as well. He had left England because of rumors, it's not clear if they're true, of his having slept with, I think, a half-sister. I think that's right. I'm Sounds right. Rusty on this. Okay. Yeah, I read it today. Right, okay. <laughs> I'm a little rusty on this one. It's a little section. Right. But he never got to actually fight for Greek independence, but he helped to raise money for it. He ultimately died a young man before Greek independence was achieved, 
but this is a person that didn't need to put himself out there, but did. It's funny when you go back to talking about the randomness of death and when people die on particular days, um, particularly now with sort of all the craziness around Trump and the impossible impeachment and stuff like that. I've thought about that more and more when certain journalists say like NPR's Cookie Roberts dies before any of this gets resolved. (laughs) Covering it, covering it, covering it, and then you're off stage before the solution comes. And I was kind of thinking that a little bit with Lord Byron too, where you're like fighting, 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 but then you get sick and you die and you don't get to see that Greek independence actually comes about. I mean, you're right. And it's also, now we remember the poets, right? And so we do remember Lord Byron or people do at least remember his name, but his role in that struggle, you're right, was probably forgotten so quickly. Yeah. Fate is harsh. <laughs> so. It is, yeah. You don't always get to have see the end of every story, for sure. You know, I mean, I, I, I always think, and this came up a couple of times in the book, and I actually thought about this with Fanny Bryce and Barbara Streisand, and, we, and I didn't end up keeping this explicit reference, but I oftentimes think of Moses and Joshua, that Moses begins the journey, and he dies before he sees the promised land. Joshua completes it. So I do think of these figures, I'm very interested in these forerunners. So Fanny Bryce is really the first famous Jewish comedian, really one of the first famous comedians, period. Mm -hmm. And she makes these strides, but she doesn't quite make it. And Streisand then picks up, in a sense, many years later, and becomes the person that Fanny Bryce really wanted to be, which was to be not just a a wacky character actress and Fanny Bryce was really talented and was successful and it was amazing that she was in the Zickfield Follies the Saturday Night Live of its time but she never became a leading lady and Streisand could do that and there's a, a, another story of Moses Fleetwood Walker who is a black man who's playing what passes for pro baseball 63 years before Jackie Robinson another writer that's quoted in the book actually uses the, the Moses promised land kind of Joshua analogy there that Moses Fleetwood Walker breaks this barrier becomes the first black man to play baseball but because of that a color barrier is erected and then it takes Jackie Robinson to break it so mm-hmm. so I'm interested in these pockets of progress that are forgotten because you know for a color line to be broken it has to be drawn in the first place and it's usually because of these early pioneers mm-hmm. That's interesting to me. Yeah, that is interesting. I was thinking, too, while while you were saying that, um, a lot of the book seems to sort of also be exploring what is the nature and value of fame. And I guess I'm just talking about Lord Byron, actually, is during his lifetime, he is very famous. But, you know, many of his poet friends, you know, Percy Shelley even, were not really well known at all until after they died. Or Little Pockets knew him, but they weren't famous. Some of the people in your book weren't famous and then become famous after the fact. What do you make of that? For some people, this is maybe a sad thing to not be recognized in their time. If only they knew, you know, how remembered they are. Other people don't care. And I suppose I'm envious. I admire the people who don't care. Like Thomas Paine, he provided the intellectual engine for the American Revolution. He wrote Common Sense. You know, before Common Sense, that pamphlet, which was published in January of 1776, before that, colonists viewed themselves as New Yorkers or Virginians or people from Connecticut. They didn't view themselves as Americans. And he got them to view 
rebellion against the crown as a common cause. I mean, he's an extraordinarily important figure, and only six people show up at his funeral. He's hated. He's reviled by the end for a variety of reasons. And so the, the chapter is kind of tongue-in-cheek about advising him on how he could have been better remembered. But the truth is, I don't think he cared. That's what makes Thomas Paine sort of extraordinary. I mean, he believed in things so fervently and, and being famous. His biographer, Craig Nelson, told me that he did love being famous at different points, but that wasn't what was really driving him. For you, since you're in, in all of your career, you've worked with so many quote-unquote famous people. What do you make of fame? You've studied it and worked beside them. What do you make of it personally? So I think that fame as a motivation is a natural and even handy motivator early on. I mean, I think if that's all you want, that's bad. I think I have, as somebody who's kind of almost famous... I think I have a healthy relationship with it. Like, I, I think to myself, boy, it's really flattering five times a day, sometimes as, as often as that, for somebody to stop me on the street and go, hey, I like that thing you did. It's always nice if somebody points out something specific. I don't think I'm consumed with it, but I think it's interesting. I do think it's a little trite to sort of say people, you know, who want to be famous are bad. As for whether fame is actually a bad thing, I don't think it's good. I think it's it, it's a distortion field. I mean, I do know people, not good friends, but I do know people that I've watched become very, very famous. And it does change them, and it's kind of weird. So that's maybe that's partly why I wanted to write celebrities who put their butts on the, the line as a section of the book because I do think it's extraordinary that somebody like Elizabeth Taylor and it's a story that's been told but I do think it's extraordinary that Elizabeth Taylor who was like lived the life of like an alien of a space alien I mean she was famous and you know had literally had violet colored eyes but like was famous for so long and that when AIDS emerged as an epidemic you know, at that point, she'd become a punchline. She'd put on a lot of weight. She really could have just receded, and she didn't. Mm-hmm. She really did do that thing that almost sounds cliched, but using her fame for good. So, yeah. What did she do for people who don't know? As you have a giant bite of pizza. I mean, I'm sorry. Forgive me for being so rude talking to your listeners with pizza in my mouth, but it's a really good this crust. Mm. <laughs> um, basically, what she did was she was the first celebrity to really make any effort to raise money and put the focus on people living and dying with AIDS. She called many famous people and asked them to help with a dinner that was going to take place in L.A., which would really be one of the very first big fundraising dinners, and they all rebuffed her, at least most of them did. Only when Rock Hudson <clears throat> died, her good friend, when Rock, the actor Rock Hudson died of AIDS, or announced that he had AIDS, I should say, did that move the needle a little bit? And then I think it guilted more Hollywood people into helping. But she was already there. But even as important as that, she stayed with it for the rest of her life. She raised a ton of money. And while somebody like Larry Kramer, as an activist, organized the actual very first meeting of AIDS activists back in 1981, and that was crucial and important, um, she did the important work of persuading the mainstream and corporate boards to get behind AIDS advocacy. Yeah. 
Hi there, it's Tiffany. And I'm Katie. We are breaking into the show really quick, so I can ask Katie a question. Yes. So, since you've worked for public radio for almost two decades, I mean, you're a trained radio professional. Yeah. Yeah. What is it like for you, specifically for you, to listen to podcasts? I mean, podcasting is kind of like the new blogging. Everyone's doing it. Everyone and their uncle, people who probably have no experience. Oh, yeah. Everybody wants to have a podcast right now. <laughs> Everybody wants to have a podcast. What do you make of it? Well, in a way, I really love it because I'm a huge fan of audio as a medium for art. I have loved radio since I was a little, a little, little, little person. So I'm very glad that people are so interested in it. That said, I audition new podcasts every single week. Really? Looking for new things to listen to. And I hear a lot of shows that are making mistakes that could be avoided if the hosts or the producers of those shows knew a little bit more about radio and weren't just trying to dive in and get going at it. If they knew a little bit more about what makes radio work and what makes it not work, that sort of thing. Hmm. And now people can get that advice directly from you. That's right. I know. So podcast consulting with Katie. This is just one of many thank you gifts that you'll find at our new Patreon page. So you can get help with your podcast dreams and support the show that you love at the same time. Yes. Visit patreon.com slash the bittersweet life podcast. Pledge to financially support this show. And you can pick up some podcasting help or some other great prizes if you prefer. Patreon, if you've never heard of it before, is a website that makes it easy for you to support the independent art that you love, like this show. Yes, we, we humbly consider ourselves artists and we work really hard to make this show and we hope that it inspires you and that it entertains you. And if it does, we ask you to help support it. Yes, you know that art doesn't occur in a vacuum. It needs people who are patrons of those arts to keep them going. We can't do it without you. Please visit patreon.com slash the bittersweet life podcast right now and help us keep this show going. That's spelled if you're a terrible speller like me, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash the bittersweet life and we'll put a link in the show notes too. Thank you so much. And now back to the show. All right, let's shift one more time into one other story. I want to talk about Chang and Ng. For people who do not know who Chang and Ng are, who are they? So Chang and Ng were the original Siamese twins. Conjoined twins have been around probably since the beginning of time as a, a rare incidence of childbirth. And Chang and Ng came from what is now Thailand, what was then Siam. As teenage boys, they were, quote-unquote, discovered in a fishing village selling duck eggs. Um, and they were brought over by two men who had names that were almost Dickensian in their kind of <laughs> symbolism, Abel Coffin and Robert Hunter. <laughs> I mean, right? I mean, Hunter and Coffin. Like, bringing these boys, basically, they were somewhere between indentured servitude, indentured servants and slaves. They became, when they came to America, America was really boring. I mean, the only things that to do basically were, was cockfighting and drinking hard cider. So they became incredibly famous. They are arguably two of America's first entertainers. They predate P.T. Barnum and The Freak Show. They really became really famous. They were charming. In their four-month voyage, I believe, over by ship to America, they learned to speak English. They could do a backflip together. They would joke with live crowds. They were extremely famous. They became metaphors. They show up as symbolism in Moby Dick. 
Mark Twain used them. Um, newspaper writers, when they would talk about the strains between North and South before the Civil War, Chang and Ang were the metaphor about the bond that could not be torn asunder, or could it? For the record, the surgery would have been, to separate them would have been fairly simple today, but it wasn't then. What was interesting to me about this story was as a kid, I remember I was basically obsessed with three things, quicksand, tarantulas, and Siamese twins. Anytime I'd hear about conjoined twins being born, you'd want to see pictures. I'm, I'm being a little jokey, but I think we're hardwired, right? Because they're like us, but they're not, right? They're like us, but they're not. So we're fascinated. And especially if you have a sibling, right? It excites the imagination. What if I was attached to that sibling? And against all odds, they win their freedom. They find wives. They marry. And they have children. Between the two of them, they had 21 children. Chang sired 10 children. Ang had 11. I think I have that right. They settled in North Carolina before the Civil War. And they owned slaves. And that's the part of the story that I think, on the one hand, you think, oh, I was loving them. Oh, my God, I was so with them. And they just ruined it. It's also the part of the story that makes it more th worthwhile to tell. Even though they had essentially been enslaved, they then turned and did that to other people. They not only owned slaves, they purchased child slaves, enslaved children, almost as investment properties. Obviously, that part of the story is really ugly, but it's part of the story. And to me, Chang and Ang are an incredibly American story. It's a story about immigration. It's a story about extraordinary can-do and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's a story about entertainment. We love entertainment. And it includes this very dark element as well. What do you make of that, though? Do you make of that that they, as they get success, they use that success to build themselves up? Or would it have been slavery would have been so common that even though they themselves had been owned, that would have just seemed the thing to do? Do you make anything out of the fact that they did that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Yontag Wong, who is um, a biographer of theirs, a very good writer who I spoke to, said, look, they were honorary Southern gentlemen. They lived in a, in a world where they're arguably also two of the first Asians in America at all. Chang and Ang way precede the building of the railroad and the mass Chinese immigration. So they lived in a world that was basically black and white and Native American, and they strived to be honorary whites. It was illegal for them to marry white women, but they just simply paid a fine and did it anyway. They settled in North Carolina because the Blue Ridge Mountains reminded them of the part of Siam they'd come from. That's what it meant to be a Southern gentleman back then, at least in that part of the country, was to own slaves. And, you know, I try to not wag my finger at the past. It doesn't mean that it shouldn't be analyzed. And sure, there's place for judgment, but I try, I try to be as non-judgmental of the past as possible because I don't think it helps to use modern-day values That's what it meant to be a Southern gentleman back then. It's horrifying. It's horrifying, especially considering how they themselves had been treated. But it's also what happened. How much does compassion shape how you approach a story? So I've been on for 13 or more years on CBS Sunday Morning, 
which is the arts and culture program on CBS that's been on for, what, 42, 43 years now. The founding anchor, who was brilliant, was a man named Charles Kuralt, who did pioneer the on-the-road stories. And I never met him, but one of his producers, a woman named Mary Lou Teal, I work with her now, and she said that Charles used to say, you know, it's okay to like the people you interview. And I'm stealing this from columnist Frank Bruni, who wrote a nice thing about my book. And Frank said, you know, obituaries are the one place left in journalism where generosity is the rule of thumb. I'd rather do that. I'd rather err on the side of being generous. I don't want to disqualify people from the past because who knows how we'll be judged. We may be judged harshly. And so that's compassion. I think it's in short supply and I'd rather be compassionate. I'm, I'm not interested in profiling bad people. Since we do talk a lot about travel and living abroad and the seeking and the displacement and all those things that come from that, when I was looking through all your stories, I was thinking, how important do you think that moving abroad is to the formation of so many of these remarkable people? Audrey Changening, Lord Byron, all the people we talked about. It's a great question. Um, I know it was formative to me. I mean, I lived in Japan and right out of college, not for a long time, for only about four months, though at the time that felt like a long time. I don't know. I, it's hard for me to articulate what that did for me. I know for one thing, being in a city with so many people, there's that whole thing, you know, Am I the center of the universe or am I a speck of dust? And you're both. But I mean, if you live in a place like Tokyo, it lends credence to the speck of dust half, which is useful, a kind of humility maybe. There's a whole world out there, quite literally. Yeah. And so in doing the research, doing the podcast, writing this book, is there anyone or anything in it that kind of has rooted itself in you, not as a good story, but as something that shifted your perspective. So you talk about travel. Let me, t let's, rather than travel abroad, I can speak more directly to traveling through time. Great. Love it. So, so I've been spending a lot of time with these dead people. And one of the sobering things that's really sunk in is that we're all going to be forgotten pretty quickly. And that sounds like such a bummer but I find it liberating. I think rather than, you talked about, you asked me about fame. I think what's really sunk in is, rather than curate your future, curate my future. <laughs> Worry about what the hypothetical museum exhibition will say. I'm kidding, I'm not that grandiose. Don't worry about it because what you're doing now, living in the moment, is so much more important. I think that's really what I've come away with. That remarkable lives that I'm hoping I can make people remember at least for just a little bit longer, rediscover. They'll be forgotten again. But I think there's value in the lives that these people lived and the examples that they set, the lessons that they kind of impart. But... It is also ephemeral. So that's not to say live for today as if, and don't care about stuff. Do care about stuff, but care about today. I, I know that might sound counterintuitive, 
clearly I'm still trying to figure out um, um, for myself, but that's, I have found that freeing to not worry so much about the future and just to focus on the moment because it's all so ephemeral. Freeing because you would have been a person who was always plotting ahead or? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Maybe you're getting me to confront the fact that, that maybe I was someone more likely to think to try to think 10 steps ahead. And I don't think that's the right way to live. Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Living is the book. If you sign this, I'll send it to one of our listeners. They could win it. So let's do that. Uh, we'll send a copy out. If you uh, follow the Bittersweet Life podcast on social media, Tiffany, my partner, will tell you how you can win. She always comes up with some way to enter to win. And this one comes with a smear of marinara on it. <laughs> Very Italian, very Italian. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Katie. Thanks. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. <laughs> Thanks for all the ways you support us. Give us a good rating on iTunes. Subscribe to the show. And pledge your support at patreon.com slash the bittersweet life podcast. And for goodness sake, interact with us on social media. Just search for the Bittersweet Life podcast on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Or send us an email at bittersweetlife at mail.com. That's bittersweetlife at mail.com. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, send us a letter there too. Our logo is by Jody Rick at the Lost Laboratory, with help from our muse, Caravaggio. Talk to you next week. Bye.